out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, again. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Once again, bringing you the finest in indie pop from the golden decade. And sometimes beyond. Because this week's special guest is going to be somebody who was huge in the 90s. And still is. He hasn't shrunk. That's the one and only Jake Schillingford of My Life Story. This is an interview I did uh, in 2015, the autumn of, when uh, My Life Story were having a tour and playing dates in the uh, Norwich area. And I thought, I love that band in the 90s. I must get an interview with him. Um, and this is it. But just as a sort of word up, he has, or they have, a new album out. This is 2019, World Citizen, and a date in Norwich on November the 21st at Epic. But anyway, that's all a bit time-specific, and we don't care. We're going to play a bit of uh, My Life Story and then the interview. This is going to be Suited and Booted. i 
Great vocal. That is my life story with a track titled Suited and Booted, which was, which was from The Golden Mile. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. And this week's special guest is going to be Jake Shillingford, who I spoke to. This is an interview was from 2015. My God, such a long time ago. The autumn when uh, My Life Story were doing some dates. And this is the interview, unedited, but quality chat all the same. And uh, this is the bit after the waffle at the beginning where I had mentioned about My Life Story, the string section where they pioneered it before everybody else jumped on the bandwagon. And this was Jake's reply. Jake, take it away. Yeah, certainly certainly in the 90s, we were, yeah, we were very much known for it. I mean, I think, I, mean, I agree with you, I think, I think, I think the seventies were, along with you know, bands like Yellow, uh, also you know, very known, very much known for, for bringing orchestral elements into rock music. And then, I suppose in the eighties, um, I was a big fan of, of of bands, I suppose like ABC and and um, Mark Armand, uh, who particularly thought did some great string arrangements and and um, you know, the sort of managed to work those with the sort of seedier side of pop. And yeah, in the nineties. During, during the sort of early 90s when when grunge was really happening i mean i i just you know i remember t- very much taking a you know a bold decision to sort of go against the grain really and um and and sort of deliberately set up this sort of very you know rather fay glamorous pop band with, with and we had no guitars i mean we we deliberately um you know didn't have any to go against the grain and to go against you know the rock music that was going on at that time, just so that we could stick out, and that 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 proved to really work. And then, um, and then, yeah, you know, uh, everybody around at the time, from uh, Morrissey through to Beth Orton, um, you know, then you know, sort of called us up and asked if they could use our our string section. Actually, in a in a nice sort of about uh, sort of end to it. In fact, even Mark Armand himself um, ended up. We ended up working with him. So, so uh, yeah, we yeah. Well, I think that was I think was um, Paul. Uh, that was uh, Mark Harmon and PJ Proby, didn't he? PJ Proby, yeah. I mean, PJ. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge uh, you know fan of PJ Proby's work. You know that. You know, I think I think you know in the '90s, I felt that we'd really that that the sort of we'd lost the art of the crooner, and I suppose that's one of the things I was 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 trying to use those influences in my own work. But certainly now, you know, I feel that. You know, I love those people like Anthony Newley and, and PJ Proby. You know, uh, you know artists that really influence people like David Bowie. You know, I think I think there's a place for uh, for that sort of type of entertainer. You know, I think that they're amazing. Those sort of Absolutely, because I can remember I, we came down to Camden for your is it month of Sundays for one of those particular dates. Oh well, that's notorious. That was we were yeah we were essentially essentially going to going to give up at that point because we we put out an album on an indie label which was Mornington Crescent, our first album and. And uh, we we really couldn't. We were finding it difficult to sort of go up to the next level. And we, you know, we we made a statement. I made a statement saying, you know, come and get to the record industry. You know, come and sign us. Or, you know, we you know we, we can't really carry on much without the, your support. Well, that was quite interesting because you were that that album was produced by the one and only Giles Martin, who's the father, mm. um, son of obviously of George Martin from the Beatles fame. So obviously, you'd got sort of quite good contacts, and you'd you know with that particular debut album, it did have a lot of classic songs on it. Mm. Well, that that was another fascinating story because. And this is the honest truth. Giles Martin um, came up to me. Uh, we, were just, we did a gig at the Marquee, um, and came up to me and said, "You know, hi, I'm Giles Martin." Well, I suppose the way he said it, he assumed that I would know exactly who he was, <laughs> and I, 
I, you know, Martin is quite a common surname. Yes. And he said, you know, um, do you want to come and record at my dad's studio? And I, even then, the penny didn't drop. And um, he, he said it's in Belsize Park. And I was actually living in Belsize Park, which is sort of a couple of tube stops north of Camden, where obviously the sort of burgeoning Britpop scene was. And um, I, I thought, oh, great, you know, what's the number? And he told me the number. And it, it was literally a minute from, from the bedsit that I was actually living in at the time. And I remember trying to find it, and all I could see was this huge church, you know, which which ultimately ended up being Air Lindhurst, which is, you know, one of the biggest recording studios in Europe now. And it was just being built at the time. And it just took – what was great is I had my epiphany standing outside the church <laughs> looking at it, and suddenly like the like the end of Usual Suspects where he suddenly puts everything together and pieces all the, 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 the clues to find out, you know, what, what the actual uh, – uh, yes. Culmination of the story was. I realised that I, yeah, I, was, I, I had been talking to George Martin's son, so that was a quite an interesting <laughs> beginning of uh, of, of uh, my career. Absolutely. But with that particular that run for that that one month, the the month of Sundays, you did sort of even then you were very serious because I seem to remember you had a costume change for every song. Yeah, we used to do that. I don't know if you remember as well. One something, something that people can't remember. We had a we had a friend of ours going outside the uh, venue with a placard with "The end of the world is nigh," um, suggesting that if we were, if we didn't get signed, that you know that it would be the end of the world, and that you know, well, you know, I mean, we had a big part to play in Britpop, so you never know. But uh, yeah, it was it was an amazing. It's amazing what you can do if you throw your heart and soul and your life on the line and. You know, um, and it proved to really work. And uh, yeah, I mean, the costume changes was just another. You know, that, you know, that's, you know, there was a lot of great bands around at the time, but you know, the the idea, the fashions, and the trends at the time was really to to wear the clothes that you know you rehearse in, you know, and to wear the same clothes that you know the sort of people would would maybe wear just to go to gigs. And I wanted to separate gigs. I mean, we, in fact, we refused to use the G word. We would always call them shows. Right. Um, so you don't have a mile history gig, you have a mile history show. And uh, and we, in fact, um, we even enforced uh, a door address policy uh, at our gigs, which I think we're the first and only band ever to have a, a dress policy on the door of a, of a normal, you know, sort of... Uh, tour circuit gig i'm not suggesting that that's going to happen for this tour but um uh but it was amazing when we did it because a lot of people really got into it and i think that you know when you um you know there's been many many bands that have you know um where i suppose manic street preachers etc where people dress up to the shows and, and my life story are no different that you know um i think people treat a my life story gig as something a bit more than uh like i said the g word and it's more of an s word yeah absolutely because actually Britpop was a bit odd i mean i know Every category gets a bit... No one wants to be part of it, do they? I remember recently talking to friends about the great C86 and, and everyone tries to deny they were part of it, but you think, well, actually, as a punter, you do all sound a bit the same. And, and so you got thrown in with the Britpop period. But there were mm. definitely two different types, weren't there? There was the lads, mm. like at Blur and Oasis, and mm -hmm. then you got the, I suppose, My Life Story, Divine Comedy, the Tindersticks, mm -hmm. and even Pulp. So there was kind of an interesting difference. Mm. And Suede, I'd say Suede were in that, um, you know, very much sort of leaders of that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, maybe with the exception of Blow, who who did have a, who did did have another side to what they were about. It's just that I think Damon really pushed the lad thing in order to in order to to you know gain a bit more traction and 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 you know try and get more people to listen to to them. But um, you know, I think that the. The, the, the early Britpop bands did come from camp. They came from or hanging around that area. I mean, we re, we rehearsed in the same rehearsal 
um, uh, rooms as the Tindersticks. It was us and the Tindersticks were the first two bands to use this particular rehearsal complex called the Joint in uh, Old Street. You know, and there was, you know, we were all um, we're all hanging out together to a certain extent. So, and there was a drive, I think, certainly in London. And the and the and the sort of squats and bedsits of Camden to to try and do something that that had a lot more of a art school um, you know kind of feel to it and you know a, a real close attention to lyrics uh, arra- and, and particularly arrangement um, you know uh, and, and, and really trying to get back to sort of you know classic songwriting. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's what obviously Pulp offered that as well from Sheffield. But I think particularly, you know, it, re- it did really seem to resonate um, down in down in uh, in London. And then, of course, I suppose then maybe, yeah, maybe the, the sort of bands from the north tended to be a bit, a bit, uh, maybe sort of tapping a little bit more with um, sort of more the sort of working class kind of values that came from the 60s and the mod culture and things like that. So there were, there were the, you're right, there were those two things together. But, you know... I suppose you know so it's the Roxy Music Art School thing, isn't it? Versus um, versus yeah. I don't know Northern Soul, but well, you know, they can both of, live together. It's David Bowie against Slade, isn't it? <laughs> oh, how you see it? Okay. Yes, it's like you know one. They're yeah. both glam, but one was really glam, and one was just blokes with eyeliner. All sweet, you know, Slade and Sweet and David Bowie. But you know they they might all go yeah. in the same glam sort of compilation album but there is definitely a different yes i essence. think that's a very valid point actually but i mean i, th- I think t- i mean for me actually you know probably if, if i was to be really honest and i, I think out of those i mean i've listened to sweet probably more than dating cars and doing paper rounds was uh was blocked out of i bought my own record and i was you know i was very young at the time yeah, and, absolutely. um you know and it, it, it I, there, there was something about yeah, power, the power of, of, of those kind of glam bands, I think, you know, it's amazing. I, I think Sweet really are like a prototype sort of punk band. They yeah. sound, they really sound like, well, the Clash really sound like the Sweet if you if you sort of dissect quite a lot of their chord progressions and stuff. But anyway, that's another conversation. Oh, yes. Well, luckily it wasn't Gary Glitter anyway, because that, <laughs> that could have also been the first single, because we all wanted to be in Gary's gang back in the 70s. We did, yeah. And I, actually, I, I was quite, it was interesting, actually, because I saw... Um, I've noticed that he's sort of been airbrushed out of history, really, which is is quite weird um, for you know for, for in, in sort of in history for someone to actually be removed. You know, yeah. I mean, Hitler isn't sort of people don't you know just ignore that he wasn't there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's quite odd when um, yeah, and Lieber and Stoller and all those sort of um, you know oh sort of Ch- uh, Chapman and Chin, isn't it? Who wrote all the, the sort of Gary Bliss stuff? I mean, those people. Obviously, um, you know, they're not getting, they're well, not getting a, the royalties that a, they richly deserve. There was a huge compilation, glam compilation, that really had to have Gary Glitter in it, and um, somehow he wasn't. And I, you know, mm. I grew up at that time when he was, you know, I was just starting to watch mm. Top of the Pops, and here, there he was, and you thought, these are anthems, these are great songs, mm. long, along mm. with Sweet. And I suppose, actually, I would have probably been listening to them before Ziggy Stardust, so, yeah. Exactly, yeah, they're much more accessible, weren't they? Yes, yeah, true, in 11-year-old. But look, I we came, because we were huge fans of my life, so we even sort of came to one of your kind of Christmas reunion gigs, which was probably about 07 time as well. Right, OK. And yep, there was, yep. I, I sort of get the impression, because most bands who get together for various naive reasons, all fall out and hate each other. Mm. But there was, there always seemed to be quite a lot of love and mm. for the band and for each other within within mm. such a which such a large combo. So how did you manage to keep that going and to to the point that you even in two thousand and fifteen want to sort of get on a tour bus with each other? Well, I think that I mean I I didn't quite realise it myself, but I think that when you 
in, in, in a strange way, the larger the band, the, the easier it is for you to get on on a sort of daily basis because there's so many... I mean, we would tour... When we would go on tour, it would be two tour buses to fit everybody in the crew. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, disagreements, artistic differences, sort of classic, uh, all these sort of innuendo that comes in the music industry, you know, this, this stuff does go on. But, of course, when you're in such a large group, it tended, things tend to be quite diffused because, you know, you could go off in different groups, you know, and we would all do different sort of activities during the day. So you weren't sort of in each other's pockets all the time. And the other thing is, that, um, you know, obviously we were a mixed gendered band, um, 60, 40, uh, well, nearly, nearly half and a half, really. And, and um, relationships did, did develop in the group, um, which actually, in, in a way, made things easier because you were just... Um, you know, you're just essentially looking for one entity rather than two people. You know, right. so 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 the kind of practicalities of it actually weren't as bad as you think. But there there are lots of there are lots of very funny, famous stories within the My Life Street camp of of, of of just how ridiculous it was to try and tour with such a large amount of people. In fact, Kumar, who was our tour manager, um, he would come, he would often come up with lots of different ideas to try and you know get it round the herd up to get us you know back on the buses and get us on to the next gig and um Flovian reaction it was, it was just to be quite funny you'd have sort of you know the crow the bass player snogging a girl in a corner about you know 400 yards away from the bus i'd be talking to somebody somewhere everyone would be off all different places and then the tour manager would blow this whistle and we'd all appear you know because um if you didn't if you didn't get on the bus you'd have to make your own way to the next gig and that, that might sometimes be in another country so um <laughs> you know you had to be on your best behavior that's fantastic well look the tour starts on the 30th of the month and then it'll be the 21st of november you're in norwich now yeah you... really looking forward to that. i've got a lot of family actually around there so um oh, fantastic. I'm particularly looking, looking forward to that show yeah so with the set i mean you've got quite a lot of material because um not only have you got the all the three albums you've got lots and lots of b-sides as well so mm. putting this together has this you know what do you think about when you put your shows together and do you change them each night or do you sort of vaguely keep to the same set yeah we we, we do we have a core of songs which obviously the hits and then and then yeah we will be changing the set each night for the tour i think one of the things you sort of touched on it earlier so i think when you have such devoted fans quite a lot of fans go to a number of shows so um you know, they. Uh, it's nice to give them a different set. You know, if they're going to come to two or three gigs um, across across the tour. Uh, so, um, but but the the main the main thing with this is that because I'm I'm going out with a much smaller lineup, we're actually um, we're actually rearranging quite a lot of the songs to suit a, a more sort of rock and roll, um, direct, um, uh, you know, sort of in, uh, instrumentation and arrangement. So actually. Um, funny enough, touching on bands like The Sweet, you know, I mean, Milo Street did have, you know, big sort of glam rock influences, but we used those with strings on the top, whereas this one, it would be, it's a little bit more direct. And actually, one of the things I really found found interesting going back over the songs was, you know, maybe maybe to try and prove a point um, in the context of the times. I think uh, if I was to criticise my own work, I think some of the string arrangements tend to be pretty over the top in terms of embellishments and arrangement, which is kind of what what made, I suppose, bands like Milo Story, Divine Comedy, etc. That's why people like them, I suppose. But, um, you know, there's always been another side to me, which is the sort of, you know, the passionate punk rocker, really. And, um, you know, and actually what, what, what I'm hoping that Milo Story fans are, are going to enjoy from this is actually hearing the songs in a sort of a more direct 
um, approach, you know, with, with less of the sort of pomp and ceremony and, and, and so something that's going to sort of go hit the jugular a bit more. Fantastic. Will you be doing it? Will there be any strings at all? Or, or um, the, yes, there will be on a couple of the shows. We're, um, the way we're doing it is... Um, uh, there's a num- uh, it, it, it's an open offer to, to the various members of my live studio to jump on on the stage based uh, depending on where we're where they're based and where we're playing. So um, you it's know, certain, uh, it's, huh? or- it's organic. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, we you know everyone knows the parts and they- and you know so <laughs> they've only got to show up with a violin. You know, Fantastic. it's not that hard. And we, we've we've <laughs> sort of seen quite a lot of my life story over the 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 nineties and a bit into the. Um, the noughties. Some of your sets mm. used to sort of keep it quite short, didn't you? About forty-five to fifty minutes. Will you be playing mm. a little bit of a longer set? Uh, yeah, we are actually. Yeah, I've I've bowed under under pressure. I mean, I always I always thought that, you know, I think I like to see. I suppose when a band first starts out, you know, I think it's really good to to you know. I, I suppose seeing Jesus and Mary Chain's early gigs, you know, just doing sort of fifteen minutes. I think there was something really quite sort of. Um, I don't know, just leave the crowd wanting more and something really direct about it. But we are going to be doing, yeah, we, we, we will be giving value for money for this tour. <laughs> Is that, that, I, get, I sense that's a small complaint. <laughs> it was, a, well, no, it was fine. But Norwich, we used to sometimes, we've mm. been to London quite a lot and sometimes yeah. would um, go, God, that's over. And they haven't even played this, this and this song. And it was sometimes, and then you'd spend two hours driving back and still yes. you know, loved it. But I just sometimes you thought that wasn't the Grateful Dead, was it, with three hours? No, <laughs> but yeah, I think you've got to get the you've got to get the balance about right. I mean, um, Jason Cooper, my last three's old drummer, is now in the Cure, and uh, you know I'm I'm a huge Cure fan, but you know I even I would find myself nodding off after you know two hours yeah, watching I, the Cure. I know. Well, me too. I can't even stand for more than you know probably ninety minutes, or probably forty minutes is probably my maximum. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, Jake, we're really looking forward to the gig because, frankly, you know, it was always they were always the band that we loved in the 90s more than any other. Oh, band. well, thank you so and, much. Uh, it, I really it, appreciate it. It was just great. And we came down to London, like I said, to see one of those month of Sunday gigs and saw you mm. at the, I think, Cambridge once. And then it was, I think, with that poet, the punk poet who. Yeah, Murray, uh, Murray, Lack- Murray Lackland Young. Yeah. Who, who yeah. appeared on telly the other night. And um, so it was an exciting period. And, you know, and it was that, I suppose, the pulp. My Life Story, Divine Comedy, that and Tinder Sticks that I really enjoyed so much during that period. Mm. So mm. it was great that, you know, you've managed to sort of keep a band, you know, just plugging along rather than it all just becomes very No, I, no that, I don't think that was ever, you know, we, we, we did to, to, to make sure that was never going to happen. And, um, you, know, yeah, you know, we are more like an orchestra than a band, I suppose. So, you know, it's, um, we're not, you know, we wouldn't be in, in each other's faces as much as that. And we'll leave it there. That is the interview I did um, in 2015 with Jake Schillingfield from My Life Story, who were about to embark on some live dates, including one that was coming to Norwich, and I do believe the Arts Centre. Anyway, um, he's back. He certainly is, and the band is, and will be in Norwich very soon. The, and yes, November 2019, just in case you listen to this sometime in the future. Anyway, and they have a new album, World Citizen. And... The most interesting thing, I have a, got a, I've got another interview that I've done with Jake, which I will um, bring out very soon because um, I think that one's probably a lot better than this one. But uh, thank you for listening anyway. That was far too much honesty. This is going to be another track by My Life Story. This is You Don't Sparkle In My Eyes. That's a bit harsh.
artist living painter Painted in a painted corner The greatest on the earth Has never stepped on land I'm standing on a gold mine Oh, I could make it all mine, all mine But I don't want your money, just Champagne was a chill, such a dreadful over. 